Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the battle for Canada's future here, the political race really heating up now. Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives surging in these recent polls, his opponents going after Polyev now, including my first guest today, Jugmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Jugmeet, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much. Happy to be on. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Now, I'm looking at these polls right now. Polyev and the Conservatives, these numbers have got to be troubling for you. He's got a 14-point lead here. I mean, this is like majority government territory here. If this trend continues, what is going on and how concerned are you about it? Well, I'm really worried about people right now, and I'm worried that Pierre Polyev is not who he says he is. He says he's someone that, that cares about housing and cares about people, but when we look at his track record, he was the housing minister and while he was housing minister, 800,000 affordable homes were sold off to rich developers and were lost. And his plan now is to do the same thing. He wants to sell off public land to rich developers. We're seeing it in Ontario where Doug Ford is being investigated. His housing ministers resigned because of their plan that put money, billions of dollars in the pockets of rich developers and didn't build any homes for people. That's what I'm really worried about because I'm worried about young well, people not having a home. Well, he's connecting with those people, though, it seems to me. And with this phrase that he has now, build, 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 we have to build more housing, even if it is on publicly owned land, that appears to be resonating with people. People need housing. Well, they absolutely do. What they don't, know, what they don't need is corruption. And that's what we're seeing from the conservatives that are in power in Ontario. Doug Ford's plan put billions of dollars in the pockets of rich developers, didn't actually build homes for people. It's not actually helping. He's going to be investigated by the RCMP because he's enriched his close developer friends, giving them billions of dollars, but not actually building more homes. And my concern is we've got a track record for, for Pierre Polyev. He lost 800,000 affordable homes when he was a housing minister. It shows he's not going to help you. He won't help people right now. That's what I'm worried about. This country, as you know, has got big problems here with inflation, this economy, this housing crisis. Do you not have to wear at least part of that yourself? I mean, you're keeping this Trudeau government in power right now. Not at all. What we're doing is we're forcing this government to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. We're forcing this government to bring in dental care. And what that means, I'll give a story of a, of a woman I met in Edmonton. She has five kids, all under 12. And they were not able to afford to go to the dentist. She says, with the cost of living as it is, it's all I could do to keep a roof over my head and keep food on the table for my kids. And now, because of what we force the government to do, all of our kids went to see the dentist. Their teeth are healthier. They're happier. That's who we're fighting for. And that's what we've been doing. We've been forcing this government to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Oh, okay, well, Polyev, though, the guy you're, you're speaking out about today, is, is really pinning 
the fortunes of the, of the country and the Trudeau record squarely on you as well. So let me play a clip here for him, from him and then get your response. So this is Paul Yev sure. calling you out yesterday. Let's listen. Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau have a solution. They want a 61 cent a liter carbon tax that will make life even more expensive. They put $60 billion of new inflationary deficits that drive up interest rates and taxes. What do you say to him on that attack? I say to him, we're, we're in a time period where no one disagrees now that we're experiencing the reality of the climate crisis. We've had forest fires like we've never seen before in B.C. People had to evacuate from their homes. People are, are smelling it in the air. Kids sometimes can't go out to play. It's clear that we've got to fight the climate crisis. People know that. Canadians know that. The conservatives don't know that. They don't know how to. They don't even want to admit that there's a climate crisis. Well, people in BC know that. People in Yellowknife know that. And so it's really disappointing that that people are still arguing over something that we are living. British Columbians are living it. The people in North Territories are living it. And we've got to fight the climate crisis. Absolutely. But we've got to make life more affordable. You know what Pierre Collier is yeah. not willing to do? He's not going to call out the corporate greed of the big CEOs of corporate grocery stores that are making record profits. You'll never hear him talk about that. You'll never see him stand up and fight with workers alongside them to help them with uh, demanding better wages. But you will see him fight union workers, make their life worse. We've seen him increase the age of retirement. He's attacked seniors. He's made it harder to get housing. He's made it harder for workers to be able to get a good wage. That's his track record. He can't run from that. Okay, well, I agree with you. People know about climate change, but I would suggest to you people also know that this is a super difficult economy right now. People are having a lot of difficulty making ends meet. A huge part of the Canadian public are a paycheck away from being unable to pay their bills. I mean, we see young people in this country posting heartbreaking videos on social media about they've got a good job. They can't afford they can't afford to pay their bills or find a place to live. And he seems to be connecting on that and on the carbon tax. I mean, people know that the climate change, the climate change crisis is not going to be solved by escalating this carbon tax in Canada. So you would commit to continue to raise the carbon tax in, in Canada, correct? I would say that we, there's clearly a price on pollution. We know that there's a cost when, when big polluters are polluting. That, that's, that hurts our environment. There's a cost to that. But I would say the major two things people are talking about are the cost of homes and the cost of groceries. On the cost yeah. of groceries, we know the big grocery companies and their CEOs have used inflation as, a, as an excuse to increase their profits, to make more money off the backs of people. Pierre Paul yeah. is not going to take on these big corporate grocery stores. He's going to support them. He's not going to build homes that people can afford. He's going to let more developers get rich building things that people can't afford. We're the only ones saying we've got to build homes that people can actually afford. Well, we've got to actually unlock the power of the federal government to use the land, the money, and the resources we have to build homes that people can yeah. afford, not make rich developers richer, which is his plan. And we've got a track record. He was a housing minister who lost 800,000 affordable homes. That's 800,000 young people, 800,000 families that could have had affordable homes. But he allowed those homes to be sold off to rich developers, allowed people to get renovated and demovicted when he was the housing minister. So well, we've got a track record where he doesn't care about people. Okay, well, speaking of grocery store prices, and I agree with you, that is a key concern for a lot of people. We hear about it every single day. How much does an ever-escalating carbon tax contribute to rising grocery store prices, would you say? I would say the main driver, and we don't have to speculate, the main driver of grocery prices going up has been confirmed by the Competition Bureau of Canada, where we forced them to investigate the food prices, and they said it's corporate greed. It's the greed of CEOs 
making more money up the backs of workers that has driven up the cost of food. We know that. That's the case in no, But Canada, how much is the carbon tax, though? How much is, how much no, is the carbon tax about, increase grocery store prices? I'm talking about the main cause of increasing the cost of groceries is that these greedy CEOs have increased their prices. So why would I focus on something that's not the main cause? Let's focus on the main cause. I'm talking about the greedy CEOs like Galen Weston that have increased the cost of their groceries to make record profits while people are struggling. Pierre Polyev okay. will never mention that. You'll never hear him talk about that. But that is the main driver of food prices yeah. going up. I'm talking about it. I actually summoned him to committee and looked him dead in the eyes and said, how dare you do this? How much profit is enough? He couldn't answer that. While Pierre Polyev is talking about things on the fringes, I'm talking about the greedy CEOs who are jacking up prices for groceries, and I'm taking them on directly. You'll never see Pierre Polyev do that. You'll never see Justin Trudeau do that. Both Trudeau and Polyev are in the pockets of these wealthy corporate uh, greedy CEOs. They're not going to take them on. I am. That's the difference between me and Trudeau and and Polyev. Jagmeet Singh, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Let's talk about back to school now and the rules of the road, especially when it comes to school buses back on the road. I don't think many people understand how the law is supposed to work. Now, I've got school bus driver Jim Lambie standing by to discuss. He is a veteran school bus driver in Metro, and we'll talk about what he's seeing out on the road out there. But be aware, when a school bus is stopped, the lights are flashing, those, that means stop in both directions, okay? And let's listen to this news report on drivers who just continually ignore the law and just blow by these school buses. Have a listen to this. Be super careful, okay? Because someone's running my stop sign! Judy Clapwick has had it. We watched as drivers continually ignored her flashing red lights. They are supposed to stop front and back. But many didn't. I'm scared. Yeah, yeah, she's scared because you can see these cars just whipping by these school buses as her kids are getting off and on the bus. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jim Lambie. Jim has been a school bus driver for many years. He drives a bus in Metro Vancouver. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Mike, for having me. I um, This is a subject that probably should be dealt with more often, I think, but... Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree. I agree with you. And I appreciate you reaching out to me, Jim, on this important topic. How long have you been driving a school bus? I've, I've been driving about 13 years um, oh. in two provinces, Manitoba and uh, now, of course, in B.C. And uh, yeah, but, you know, there's it's, it's different styles of, of enforcing the law and and things. But seriously, the drivers here often, you know, we those signs almost mean nothing. They, they're, they're oblivious to them. You know, we put them out and the red lights are flashing and we, lots of time we, we always, before we approach the children, stand the side of the road or, or before we're going to let them off, we give lots of warning with the lights and they're supposed yeah. to stop as soon as the lights come on, but that they don't. And then, of course, our, we got stop signs that come out from the side of the bus at the front and back usually. Yep. And uh, and I can usually tell. I I watch them closely, but I can tell someone that's not going to stop. You know, they they're just they're sometimes they'll creep up, but they'll they'll pull right up and just blast right through them. And uh, figuring they don't see any kids yet, you know. But yeah. the kids kids are quick. They come out the door, zip around the front of the bus, and uh, that's all. 
And I've had some very close calls with children at, at times. Last yeah, year, what have very you, close with What have you seen? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, And remember what the law is here. You must stop. So when a school bus is in that stop position, the red lights are flashing. you got the stop sign flips out from the side of the bus. That means stop in both directions, right? In, bo- in both directions. You cannot right. pass the school bus in either direction when, when those signs are out. And it, right. it is a, you know, in, in some provinces, it's a huge fine. You know, it can be in the thousands, but, um, and lots of points off and even suspended driver's licenses and things like that. Man, uh, BC tends not to, they're, they're, I think their fine is about $360 and uh, three points. But, you know, that's, that's right. That, I actually look. I looked that up this morning, so I'm taking a look at the government website on it right now. So, failing to stop for a school bus, the fine is $368 and three penalty points. Do you think that should be higher? Oh, much higher, yeah. I mean, there's got to be something. I think there's two answers in my estimation is, number one, the fines need to be much higher because... I mean, kids, about 75% of all fatalities that have ever occurred on school buses are from kids stepping off and entering um, with other vehicles, you know, approaching the buses. Oh, man, that is tragic. That is absolutely tragic to think about that. Speaking to Metro Vancouver school bus driver, Jim Lambie, how often do you see this? Like when you're out there on your route like how often do you see cars ignoring the stop and just going by your um, your bus almost every almost every day you know i do i do two elementary schools morning and afternoon and i do um and i do a high school and somewhere along the line we have to use we try not to use our stop signs if we can we, we try to put doors on the side where the kids are getting off but in rural areas where i drive you, you can't always do that and there's ditches on the side and no sidewalks so we have to use the signs and uh, it happens every day, really. I mean, some people all honk and wave, just like you heard on that clip there that you played. I'm yeah. out the window screaming and waving my hands and doing everything. And people look at me dumbfounded, like, what, what's your problem? You know, and uh, they carry right on through, you know, and it's, um, I had a, I'll give you a quick example. I, I had sure. a, two, a brother and sister boarding my bus last season, last year. And they started to walk across, and the little boy dropped something in the driveway, and he turned around. There was car. There was a car coming towards us. He came around. He dropped something. He immediately spun around, picked it up, and turned around. The car blasted through, and I, I swear, I, I actually thought he'd been hit, but it, it missed him by milli inches. You know, I mean, oh. and it was just a heartbreak. I almost had to take the week off. You know, I mean, it, it upset me so much, but. Um, it's it's every day, I think, and I'm not just the only driver. We all complain about it back at the yard and things that, uh, oh, gosh, somebody went right through my line, my signs again today and, you know, whatever. What about I the think, kids? Like, when the kids are getting off the bus and getting on the bus, I mean, are they aware, like, okay, I mean, yeah, you know, we, kids are kids. So sometimes they'll be oblivious to stuff, but do, do you coach the kids at all? Hey, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we try to have them make contact with us through the windshield and wait, stop. We have a... We have a crossing arm that goes out the front of the bus, so they have to be far enough out that the driver can see them from the front of the bus. And the kids are supposed to look up at us, and then we we check everything again and then wave them across. But, you know, with grade ones and kindergartens, and they get excited, or mom and dad's waiting on the other side of the road or something, (laughs) you know, their attention span isn't real long, and sometimes they forget, and they zip out. So 
I mean, in a perfect world, all those cars would be stopped and it would never be an issue. But uh, right. unfortunately, that isn't the case, you know. Now, what about what about cameras? And you and I discussed this off the air, but <laughs> is it possible, do some school buses, are, they, are some school buses equipped with cameras? So if, let's say, a driver does blow by a school bus here and it's supposed to stop, are there any automatic cameras can record that image and, and send them a ticket? Is that possible? No, not in our buses in BC. Um, some provinces have initiated that. I know Ontario is doing it. It's, it's, it's kind of more of a school division decision. Yeah. But, you know, our, cam, our, our, our buses on the inside are bristling with cameras and they have recording devices and everything else. It would be, to my, to my estimation, would be very easy to hook a camera up that yeah, activated as soon as those signs went out and went right into the recording thing. And it is being held upheld in courts in Ontario and stuff when somebody goes in with a picture and sees a person going through these, these stop signs or going yeah. through the bus signs. So, and you mentioned, yeah, I mean, cameras would make a big difference. A big, yeah. big difference. And you mentioned, Jim, that you've been driving for several years in Metro Vancouver, and you also drove a school bus earlier in Winnipeg. Were, right. What were the fines in Winnipeg? Were the fines heavier there? Yeah, yeah. The, well, they, they started about six hundred and seventy-three dollars in Winnipeg thereabouts, and they go up. They go up to over a thousand dollars for second offenses and things like this. So, it's uh, and um, there are six points, I believe, um, they lose. And uh, yeah, it's you know, and uh, I mean, California now they've got laws that that it's a thousand dollars and you can get your license suspended for six months. You know, I mean, for going through. So they're all free. Newfoundland, uh, Labrador is a thousand dollars of fine, you know, and things. So it, it, a lot of places have realized that this is this is a threat to our children, you know, going yeah. to school and taking. And one thing to know is is that buses are fifty to seventy times safer to go to school on than than they are in their parents' car. You know, I mean, it's proven with uh, statistics that a lot more accidents in cars than there ever are in school buses. School buses are built like tanks, you know. They're they're um, they're made to withstand any kind of a small impact or anything else, but uh, and the kids are pretty safe in there, you know. So we do get them to we'll get them to school always. We get them through inclement weather. I mean, imagine Winnipeg. Well, you know, I drove through oh. snow drifts and everything else, but we yeah. always got them there safe, you know. And we've never had an incident. But but it, I'm I just know that other places that have had one of these incidents where the drivers pass the school bus. And clip one of the kids coming out from the front of the bus or something. You know, it's 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 quite a scary moment when that happens. So, hey Jim, last question uh-huh. for you. You mentioned that when you're in that stop position, the red lights are flashing, the the stop sign is flipped out from the side of your bus, and you still right. see people blowing by. And, and sometimes you will lean on the horn, you will wave at them yeah. out through the out through the window. Like, did you say that when the drivers see you, they look at you kind of kind of mystified, like they don't know what? Yeah. Do you do you think maybe people are ignorant of the law? I think that's part of it. I really do. I think that they must be because they, it's like, well, I don't have to stop. I'm going towards you, you know, and things like that. I don't know that maybe the IB, ICBC um, driver's exam doesn't emphasize it enough or something. I don't know. I, I, it yeah. used to be on the exam way back when I took a license, but I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not so much anymore. I don't know. But okay. Yeah, they, they're very dumbfounded that when I'm yelling at them and waving out the window like do that. Do some of them ever get mad at you? Oh yeah, yeah. I've had it. I've uh, one other story. Last year, I had I had about eight kids crossing the street, and a lady creeped up in her car, in her SUV, and 
she didn't she wasn't going fast she was just going slow but she weaved her way in and out of the kids to get around oh, to, go, no. to carry on and oh. the kids are stopped and on the other side of the car now and you know and she looked at me and just shook her head like angrily and off she went you know but uh, oh boy uh, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy but oh, but man. we do need to we do need to address it i think with cameras and with much stiffer fines and some people have to get fined i don't know I've never seen a policeman. I've never heard of any of our our drivers on the, in our fleet have ever said that the uh, driver was stopped for passing their bus. You know, and, okay. and so we, we need better patrols or something. Jim, thank you for doing everything you do to keep our kids safe. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Well, well, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, here we go now with Vancouver's housing densification plan. And I encourage you to follow this issue here because this is potentially big changes in the city here going forward. There'll be a key public hearing on this next week. So here's the deal on this. In neighborhoods that are now largely detached homes, single-family homes, up to six homes could be built on a single-family lot. So you're talking about townhousing uh, townhouses on some of these lots maybe like a little mini mini kind of apartment or condo development on a single family lot what about that and what about the downsides of that and we talked about that yesterday in the show what about the parking what about the stresses and strains on our infrastructure system uh what about will these homes even be affordable how do we know it's just not going to be more expensive homes that no one can afford anyway Got Ian Cromwell standing by to discuss. First, let's go back to yesterday's show. Bill Thielman, he is a a key critic of this project, this program, and here's what he had to say to me yesterday. Water system. What happens to the sewer system? What about our schools and parks? What's the impact of all this? And so you might think, well, this sounds like it might work. It's Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not. Let's do a pilot program. There's no pilot program. Okay, he said, yeah, why not do it as a pilot project instead of making it city-wide? Let's discuss now with my guest, Ian Cromwell. Ian is a health economist. He's also a musician, and he is a former Vancouver City Council candidate, and he cares very deeply about this issue. Ian, thank you for coming on today. Glad to be here, Mike. Good to be with yeah, you. I, I appreciate it a lot. So I know you like this idea, right? Let's densify in these neighborhoods, correct? I... I like a much more ambitious version of this idea. This particular policy, I think, um, my problem with it is that it doesn't go far enough. Um, But the idea of densifying in neighborhoods and recognizing that we need uh, not only higher density, but a wider variety of housing in Vancouver, I definitely support that. That was a huge part of our policy platform in the election last year and something that I think there's international consensus is needed. Yeah, okay, so if you think it doesn't go far enough, like right now they're talking about potentially six homes on a single lot. Maybe in some cases you could have eight if there's some market rental uh, homes made available there. Mm-hmm. You you think it should be even bigger? Like how many homes do you think there sh- you should have a, a, on one lot? So we did some consult uh, consultation with the nonprofit housing sector um, prior to releasing our housing platform last year. And the consensus that we got from them was that once you get around um, six floors of multi-unit housing, um, so that's a you know a, a mid-rise apartment building, is when those like, these projects start to pencil. It's also uh, the the height at which uh, mass timber is still um, you know a possible idea, and so we are and and ending up with more um, sustainable and available building materials. So you know having 
six units on a residential lot is it is a baby step in the right direction, um, but it is not nearly going to um, reach the scale that is needed to address the housing crisis that Vancouver and other cities are currently in. Wow. Okay. So you would build even more homes on a single family lot, correct? I think we should have the option. I think that we should end the ban on apartment buildings. I lived oh. in Kitsilano for the first few years uh, that I after I moved back to Vancouver, and you know I lived in a I lived in a three story walk up. There were some taller buildings around me. It was a wonderful place to be. I got a chance mm. to interact with neighbors. I had shared a lot of common spaces. Um, there were wonderful units, especially for someone who was just getting started in his career. And we have we know that young families in particular are being priced out of the city. Young professionals are having to to commute in. They have no options to either rent or own in Vancouver. And so, yeah, I think that we need to, you know, use all of the options at our disposal, mm. in, including walkups. Okay, what about? Okay, Ian, what about Carmageddon now? Because a lot of people will say, well, hang on a second here. You're going to densify like this, have all these people living on these side streets now. Where are they going to park? I mean, parking is is a problem at the best of times. Aren't you going to create a big parking problem? One of the reasons I moved back to Vancouver after I finished uh, my degree uh, in Ontario is because I wanted to live in a place where I didn't need to have a car. Vancouver is an actually a fantastic city to be a pedestrian or a cyclist, and at least grading on a curve. Obviously, there's a lot uh, more work that we can do to make, uh, especially parts of South Vancouver, um, more accessible by bike. But you know, I think this plan that is being considered by council and that has been generated by Vancouver staff really recognizes the fact that we need to move away from car-centric design and that we are going to have to provide people with options so that they don't need to rely on cars to get around. Vancouver was one of the biggest uh, adopters of Car2Go when that uh, company still existed. And we still rely and, and benefit from programs like Evo and Moto, where people who don't need to own a car to, to survive in the city, that what they can get, they can get by bike, by transit, uh, or by or in, in the ideal case, by walking. What, so what if, I don't okay, know what to... If, what if you do need a what if you do need a car though? Like let's say you have a job where you're you're in the trades or something and you got to lug around a bunch of tools all day long. You can't take a bus on that. You can't you can't ride your bike. You, yep. you know, you and need a vehicle. And that's not but that's not everybody who lives in the city. And I think that's important to recognize is that we don't need to hit the brakes so to speak on all types of housing development because of yeah. you know the extreme case um of of someone who really does and do, you know there are people who sincerely legitimately do rely on uh their vehicles for to make their livelihood but a lot sure. of people don't and i think we need to build houses for those people too okay speaking to ian cromwell former vancouver city council candidate talking about densifying our neighborhoods in Vancouver. So I take a look at this uh, report that came out from city staff on this this plan, Ian, and one of the concerns that it highlights is you could lose you could lose trees as you mm -hmm. build larger building footprints. You're going to build more on these on these uh, limited land surfaces. You got to cut down trees here to make this happen. We discussed this on the show yesterday. Let me play another clip here. Bill Thielman on yesterday's show, and then I'll get your response here. So here's Bill Thielman here saying, oh, what, wait a second. What about the trees? Have a listen. 
who needs trees in a climate crisis anyway, Mike? You know, I mean, it's just it just boggles the imagination. And uh, now we're talking about it. Well, you know, we're going to we're going to build six or eight townhouses here on a single lot. So, we, you know, guess what's going to happen to the trees? It's it's just it's the opposite direction that uh, uh, compared to heat domes and and all of the problems we're seeing, uh, forest fires, etc. We need more trees. What do you what do you say to him, Ian? I think it's a little unusual and perhaps odd. I'm trying to be diplomatic um, that to highlight the climate crisis as a reason not to build more dense neighborhoods. Mm. The consensus from anyone who studies the connection between climate and housing is that the current stock of housing that are single detached um, single family dwellings are the least efficient, highest emitting, most energy intensive way to house people. So the idea that we should avoid doing the most consequential thing that we can do as a city to protect ourselves and adapt to the climate emergency, that we should not do that because of the climate emergency, I maybe Bill just doesn't get what the climate fight is about. And I can certainly understand um, there's a lot of misinformation in the world and um, you know, there's lots of great books that I would encourage people to read on how, what we actually need to do to adapt to the climate crisis. But I am not dismissing that there are downsides to any change in any neighborhood. That is yeah. an inevitable, that's inevitable. Any change is going to come with downsides. What I do for a living is I try to work with uh, healthcare decision makers to try to quantify trade-offs recognizing that there are downsides and recognizing that there are upsides. And in my view, the upside of having more homes that people can live in, a yep. more sustainable and more um, you know, livable city is a much bigger and much more urgently needed upside. And okay. there are there is language within the plan to mitigate some of the tree loss that Bill is talking about. Okay, here's the other one that a lot of people will mention in it for your thoughts is that, okay, if we allow this, you can build six, maybe eight homes on a single family lot. What is the guarantee that these homes will be any more affordable than what we already have? Like right now, the homes are priced out of the market for so many people who are just basically mm-hmm. non-millionaires. So why would mm-hmm. these homes be any more affordable? So let me play another clip here for, for you from Bill on yesterday's show. Bill Thielman here on, wait a sec, won't these be very expensive homes? Let's listen. Saying we're going to throw six and eight multiplex units all over the place. That's not going to, potentially that could make everything even more expensive. It's certainly not going to say uh, create dirt cheap, uh, affordable market uh, housing for people who have an income, average income. Okay, Ian, your thoughts. So. The plan does um, mention some specific language about how, um, like, options to encourage below market home ownership, and I would encourage Bill to, to give that report a read. Um, but the broader point that whether or not this plan is going to actually impact affordability in the city is a is a it's a valid point, and I think it is accurate to say that this plan on its own in the absence of any other contribution from other levels of government and in the absence of a much more ambitious densification plan from the city will not have a meaningful impact on housing affordability. I'm one of those non-millionaires who lives in the city and is likely to be renting here forever uh, if I can stay in the place that I'm in now. So this issue touches me personally and a lot of friends of mine who can't afford to stay in the city um, or who for whom eviction would be an absolute 
catastrophic problem. You know, we have a, we, the affordability crisis needs to be addressed from a bunch of different directions. And in my opinion, this plan, this before council is a very, very, very small piece of a much broader conversation that needs to happen. Ian, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this important topic today. I appreciate it. Glad to be here, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's talk about cell phones in school now. It's interesting to see other provinces bringing in these province-wide restrictions and bans on cell phones in the classroom. Ontario has done it, Quebec. Uh, in the news just this week in Manitoba, the Francophone School Board there, which is a very large school district uh, across Manitoba, uh, they've banned cell phones in the classroom too. Should BC do the same thing? I got Eleanor Sturko standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to Shimmy Kang, who is a psychology professor at UBC on phones and cell phones in school. Studies show that when cell phones are banned or limited, uh, we see improved attention, we see better grades, we see better sense of school community. Uh, teachers are less frustrated in general. All right, let's discuss now with Eleanor Sturko, BC United Education Critic. Eleanor is the MLA for South Surrey. Eleanor, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks Thanks for doing this. And uh, this is a really interesting issue. We focused on it on recent shows. Where does BC United stand on this one? Well, if we're elected government, we said that we would enforce a K-12 classroom ban during non-instructional time on smartphones. So we agree with what that psychologist just said. We, we believe it does enhance student engagement. We also hear from parents. But they are concerned, you know, their kids are spending a lot of time on smartphones and they want to make sure that they're getting the most out of their instructional time. Okay, how does this work in British Columbia right now? I believe we have like a patchwork of rules on this, right? It varies from district to district. It does. And so, you know, you've probably seen it in the news and, uh, you know, online or on maybe even on your smartphone that uh, some schools and districts have uh, tested out, you know, bringing these sort of smartphone bans and at least having them locked up in classrooms during instructional time, and they've seen positive outcomes. Um, yeah. So we want to we want to create an opportunity where we have consistency, and I think that's something that your listeners have heard me say. Whether it was about the need for consistency in drug prevention education or sexual education, all kinds of things, and so we also think that having that consistency across the province, where everybody has the opportunity to make the most of their instructional time, is an important aspect, and which is why we think that enforcing it across the province is the right thing to do. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how the rules work in some schools, and we've discussed this on the show recently. So, for example, there was that school on, on the island near Victoria that has the, the rule. I know other schools have this too. When you go into the classroom, so you're ready to learn, you're ready to focus, put the cell phone in a basket at the front of the class, okay? Or you could keep the, the cell phone zipped up in your backpack and, and set on silent mode, is that the is that the type of rule you would like to see province wide? Yeah, we would like to see something like that, you know. And, and yeah. Kevin Falcon has talked about even providing resources for you know helping fund special cell phone lockers for schools if that's you know something that's more comforting to to people to know that their personal property is secure. But really, it's yeah. about adding that consistency, like you mentioned. And nobody likes to be the bad guy, the no-fun police, where we're taking away something that people obviously really like. 
And so we want to be able to have that framework and that support for school districts um, so that if they want to do something like this, that they, they have that support of government to make it happen. Yeah. What about, let's say, special needs kids? And I've heard this from parents of special needs children who say, you know what, my, my son or daughter needs that phone. I need to be in constant communication with them. They have special needs. Sometimes they might need me to pick, pick them up at school. I, they need to have their phone. How would you work? How would that work? Well, and that's the thing is, you know, unlike the NDP in the way in which they've just decided to change the letter grades, for example, and not take into account uh, what parents and teachers and students say, we'd absolutely continue to make it a consultative practice where we look for best practices based on what the needs of the school district, what the needs of teachers and students are, and having, you know, a ban to, to lock up, you know, smartphones during instructional time doesn't mean that if it is going to be used either for an individual learning plan, like if it's a necessity to help facilitate learning for someone with a disability, well, it's a no-brainer that we would absolutely not restrict that ability for people to use it in when it's a necessity. And, you know, also let's say a teacher had a math class and the smartphone or a social studies class where the smartphone or Googling or using it as a tool for instruction, obviously that would be appropriate as well. We're talking about where teachers trying to teach a class where cell phones are not part of the instructional method and people are on Snapchat, they're on TikTok, they're, you know, and they're not paying attention when we really need people to be focused on what they're learning in class. Right. And, And as you said there, okay, so this would apply to instructional time. So when class is in session, what about non instructional time? What about, you know, lunchtime or before and after class? These kids would still be allowed to use their cell phone on school property at those times? Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's about creating a focus in the classroom and making sure that instructional time is put to its best use. It's not about policing what people do in their free time. And then, of course, you know, if the school wanted to extend it to be at all times, including recess and playtime, they would be free to do that. But our focus really is on making sure that kids get the most of the learning time. And, you know, what they do in their social time, you know, that has to be managed by the educators. Speaking to BC United MLA, Eleanor Sturko. Eleanor, you also touched on the issue around letter grades on report cards, which are being phased out in BC from kindergarten through grade nine. This is the law of the land now. No more letter grades on your kids' report cards. Going for those written descriptors instead. So I know you've been critical of this. What is the uh, what is the policy of BC United on this? Would you go if you guys were in power? Would you go back to the letter grade system? Yeah, we would reinstate letter grades. We find this to be too vague of a grading system. My own kids were actually part of the pilot, so they had been on the new grading system. My spouse and I found it to be quite vague. It didn't improve, actually, our understanding of where our kids were. And, in fact, we later found out that our daughter has a learning disability um, that wasn't being diagnosed. It wasn't being flagged. And, you know, she was considered to be emerging for several report cards, and we actually had no idea that that was a problem. Um, you know, whereas if we would have perhaps seen that she wasn't meeting expectations, that um, she was not getting more than 50% of the material, it would have been easier for us to understand. I've heard, you know, um, I've been watching the media, obviously monitoring on both sides um, what's being said. Some of the proponents of the new grading system talk about the fact that, oh, it's more engaging. It's a two-way conversation. But, you know, I don't think that being in the ABC or percentages system ever 
stopped teachers from being able to discuss the challenges that learners were having or to talk yeah. to a parent when someone was uh, failing a certain, a certain grade. You know, what it, about... What about kids who are stressed out by their report cards? I mean, we've heard from experts who say, oh, there's a lot of anxiety and stress and even depression among kids because they're so worried about the gr- the letter grade they'll get in their report card. Are you not buying that? Well, this is funny, Mike, because someone actually tweeted almost the exact same thing to me on one of my threads where I was talking about this very subject. And they yeah. said that they had an undiagnosed learning disability that they didn't get diagnosed until they were an adult out of school and that they, their self-esteem was harmed because they received a failing grade. And so I thought to myself, well, do we want to change the grading system so that people feel good despite the fact that they didn't uh, grasp the concept? Or do we want to be better at diagnosing things like learning disabilities and helping people grasp the concept so that, you know what, you won't receive a failing grade. Your grade will actually improve because we've figured out what the challenge is that you're facing. and We've helped you to overcome it and supported you with the supports that you need. So it's not about changing how we talk to people. We don't want to, you know, of course we don't want any student to feel bad. We want them to succeed. But it's not about changing the way that we talk about someone not being good at it or having challenges that's going to help them learn more. We need to actually find out why it is that they're not grasping those concepts and move them past that and help them to grasp the concept, identify what their learning disabilities are, properly fund diagnosis, and actually support people to learn the concepts. It has nothing to do with how we word the grading. Okay, these are great issues. We're going to continue following them as we go forward. Thank you for your thoughts on it today. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.